Welcome to the fifth episode in our real estate podcast series on the compulsory purchase or CPO regime in England. I'm Fiona Sawyer, a professional support lawyer, and I'm here with Julia McEwen, an associate in the Herbert Smith Freehills London planning team. Hopefully, you have already had a chance to listen to our previous episodes in this podcast series. These have given an overview of compulsory purchase and how a CPO is made. If you haven't had a chance to listen to previous episodes, which go through the various stages of the compulsory purchase process timeline in order, it may be worth going back so that you are hearing this episode in context. Julia, which part of the CPO process will you be speaking about today? Hi Fiona. Well, now that you have heard about how a compulsory purchase order is made and confirmed, I'm going to let you know how the CPO can be implemented and how the right to enter and take possession of the land is exercised. It's worth noting that I'm going to be talking about the standard procedure for implementing a CPO, but it's always important to check the relevant CPO powers carefully before taking steps to exercise them. In some instances, particularly where compulsory purchase powers are contained in a Development Consent Order, or DCO, such as in the fictional case of Smith Airport Limited, which we've been considering throughout this podcast series. The regime that applies to implementation may be altered or amended slightly. So, a CPO is implemented in one of two ways, either by the Notice to Treat and Notice of Entry procedure under the Compulsory Purchase Act 1965, or by a General Vesting Declaration, known as a GVD, under the Compulsory Purchase Vesting Declarations Act 1981. The first option, the Notice to Treat procedure, involves three separate steps. A Notice to Treat, a Notice of Entry, and a Conveyance. The second option, the GVD procedure, replaces those three steps with just one step. For GVDs, the title in the land vests automatically with the acquiring authority on a specific date. Under the second GVD option, the date that the land vests with the acquiring authority in other words, becomes the property of the acquiring authority, is known as the vesting date. So it sounds like the GVD option is much more straightforward than the notice to treat option. Is it therefore the most commonly used of the two procedures? Yes, the GVD route can certainly be quicker than the notice to treat route. The acquiring authority can obtain title to the land more quickly and the amount of compensation payable doesn't have to be settled before the title to the land is transferred. A GVD is also useful where there is some uncertainty over the ownership of all of the land interests because provided the correct procedure is followed, the GVD vests all interests in the land in the acquiring authority, whether they are known about or not. For these reasons, the GVD procedure is often the preferred route. However, there are some advantages to the notice to treat procedure as well. For a developer, while acquisition of the legal title to the land may take longer using the notice to treat process, it may be possible to gain possession of the land and start the development more quickly than under a GVD. Okay, so there are some clear benefits to each of the procedures. Can you give us a bit of an overview as to how each process is followed in practice? Sure. Let's start with the notice to treat process. Firstly, a notice to treat must be served on anyone, including companies, who is an entitled person. Whether or not someone is an entitled person depends on their interests in the land. 
For example, owners of freehold leases and subleases are generally entitled to receive a notice to treat, but licensees are generally not. There is no prescribed form for a notice to treat, but it must adequately describe the land, request details of land interests and the compensation claim of the person receiving the notice, and state that the acquiring authority is willing to negotiate for the purchase of it. If the authority does not then negotiate to purchase in good faith, in other words, sincerely and honestly, the notice to treat can be set aside by a court and the owner may be entitled to damages for any loss suffered. It might be easier to explain this by way of an example. Let's consider the fictional scenario of Smith Airport Limited and Herbert Holmes that we have used throughout this series. Having made diligent inquiries, Smith Airport Limited discovers that there are several interests in the land it wants to acquire to build its airport, including one, a mortgagee, two, a neighbouring farmer with an option to purchase the land, three, a logistics company with a contractual licence to use one of the sheds on the land for storage purposes, and four, a person with access rights over the land by way of an easement. Smith Airport Limited should serve a notice to treat on the mortgagee and the neighbouring farmer, as both have an interest in the land that entitles them to receive a notice to treat and to enter into negotiations with Smith Airport Limited for compensation. Smith Airport Limited would not normally need to serve a notice to treat on the person who has the benefit of the easement, but it is slightly less clear whether it should serve a notice on the logistics company as licensee. There is conflicting case law as to whether contractual licensees are entitled to receive a notice to treat and therefore be entitled to enter into compensation negotiations. Smith Airport Limited will need to carefully consider the nature of the contractual license to determine whether the company's interest entitles it to receive a notice to treat. Once a notice to treat has been served, the acquiring authority can serve a notice of entry and take possession of the land unless a counter-notice is served by the landowner or occupier. Oh, so what is a counter-notice? A counter-notice might be served by an occupier or landowner for a couple of reasons. For example, an occupier might serve a counter-notice requiring the authority to take possession of the land on a specified date. This would remove the uncertainty and prejudice to the occupier in circumstances where the authority does not enter and take possession of the land on the date it has specified in its notice of entry. A landowner might also serve a counter notice where the acquiring authority is only proposing to acquire some of its land or buildings, which would leave only small inconvenient areas, or where the front or back garden is proposed to be taken, which would affect the amenities of a house. In some cases, the landowner could serve a counter notice on the authority to compel the authority to buy all of the land rather than just the land the authority needs for its purposes. Oh, thank you, Julia. So you've said that owners who receive a notice to treat can claim for compensation. What will this compensation cover? Claims for compensation will be covered in the next episode of this series, but a point to note here is that the time periods for making claims for compensation can differ depending on whether land is acquired through the notice to treat route or the GVD procedure. Okay, thanks, Julia. So, back to the two processes for acquiring the land. Yes, so we've talked about the notice to treat process. Now let's look at the GBD route. 
The procedure for making a GVD was changed in February 2017 by the Housing and Planning Act 2017. I'll be talking about the procedure which applies to GVD acquisitions authorised on or after that date. For a GVD, once a CPO has been confirmed, the acquiring authority must serve and publish a confirmation notice, which must include a prescribed statement describing the GVD process and the effect of the GVD. The statement must invite any person who would be entitled to claim compensation if the GVD was made to give personal information and details of their interest in the land. Once the prescribed statement has been given in the confirmation notice, the acquiring authority may execute a vesting declaration, vesting the land in themselves from a specific date after the CPO becomes operative. The land will vest in or become the property of the acquiring authority the day after that specified date, which is known as the vesting date, together with the right to enter and take possession of the land. In some circumstances, there may be additional notice requirements and the vesting date will be determined following a different process. This might include where the land is subject to a minor tenancy or a long tenancy about to expire or where a counter notice is served. As soon as possible after making the vesting declaration, the acquiring authority must serve notice of it on every occupier of the land and on every person who has given the acquiring authority information in response to the confirmation notice. So to recap, under the notice to treat route, a notice to treat must be served on entitled persons. The acquiring authority then negotiates in good faith to purchase the land interests, following which the acquiring authority can then serve a notice of entry and take possession of the land. Under the GVD route, a confirmation notice is served and then a vesting declaration is executed which vests the land in the acquiring authority. In each case, compensation is payable, which we will cover in the next episode. Is that a fair summary? Yep, that's about about it in short. Thanks, Julia. So, what are the time limits for each of these processes? How long could it take for the land interest to be transferred to the acquiring authority? Three years is the golden rule. Both a GVD and notice to treat must be executed and served within three years of the CPO becoming operative. CPO powers can be lost entirely if a GVD has not been executed in time or if a notice to treat is not served within the time limit. So it's very important to be aware of the relevant time limits that apply. Note, however, that for the notice to treat route, It is acceptable to serve the notice to treat within the three-year time limit, but complete the purchase and take possession after three years, as long as completion and possession takes place within a reasonable time frame. If the notice to treat is declared invalid by the court, such as when there has been unreasonable delay, a new notice to treat can be served. But this must also be done within three years of confirmation of the CPO, otherwise a new CPO will be required. Thank you. So are there any other key points that we should be aware of? The law and procedures that govern compulsory acquisition are complex. The implementation process, if not followed correctly, is open to legal challenge, particularly where an interested party has suffered substantial prejudice as a result. The courts also appear to be taking a strict approach where the exercise of CPO powers do not fall squarely within the scope of what was originally envisaged by the CPO. We can apply this to our fictional example of Smith Airfield Limited. Let's say that Smith Airfield Limited has successfully acquired CPO powers for the acquisition of their former airfield to turn the land back into an operational airport. It then discovers that it would be more financially rewarding to develop the land for some other purpose, 
such as an industrial estate, as this would clearly fall outside the scope of what was originally envisaged by the CPO, it would be unlawful for Smith Airport Limited to acquire the land for this purpose. It would need to obtain a new CPO authorising acquisition for the purpose of development as an industrial estate. Thank you very much for this, Julia. This has given us a few points to bear in mind when considering the differences between the two CPO routes. In the next and final episode in this series, we'll be discussing CPO compensation. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you, Fiona. This series is intended to provide a general overview of the various stages of the compulsory purchase process. We've tried to ensure that each podcast is accurate at the time of recording, but the law can change and a general overview can't take account of the many different factors that can affect each individual case. So please seek legal or professional advice. If you have any questions on this podcast or any other in the series, please get in touch using the contact details on the podcast homepage. Thank you.